It's about vocation, not vacation. <laughs> There's a difference. So I just wanted to make one uh, fast announcement too. We're putting together that Easter choir and we're uh, deficient about eight male voices. So we need some help. Otherwise, it's going to be Andy and Vince and I, and you just don't want to go there. So come on, men. We need eight more male voices to fill out that choir. Their first rehearsal, I believe, is the 16th of March. So uh, if you like to sing, come and uh, minister uh, among us in that way. Hey, you know, when, um, when men meet each other for the first time, typically uh, one of the first things that they ask the other guy is, so, so what do you do for a living? What's your work? And uh, sometimes uh, some of us can be a little embarrassed by that question with regard to our work. We, you know, maybe we don't think what we're doing is all that significant or all that um, special or exciting, and so we, you know, we're even a little bit embarrassed by that question. I remember when I was in college, I worked for a time um, at a service station pumping gasoline into cars. Uh, I realized that, you know, for the younger generation, they have no idea what that means. But uh, believe it or not, for the price of gas, we would check the tire pressure, we would wash the windows, we would check the oil, and we would fill up your gas tank for 79 cents a gallon. But uh, I was uh, at times a little embarrassed by uh, being that. So someone would say to me, well, what do you, you know, what do you do for a living? What's your job? And I said, I'm a petroleum transfer engineer. (laughs) And uh, that sort of broke the ice a little bit and uh, and took a little of the sting out out of that question. But, you know, if we have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of vocation, then there is no need for embarrassment whatsoever. No need. For any legitimate work done well is glorifying to God and worthy of praise. Worthy of praise. So this morning, we're going to look at the doctrine of vocation, and as we do that, we're going to ask and answer two questions. Two very important questions having to do with the doctrine of vocation, and I want to do it so that we can capture a sense of excitement and fulfillment as we participate together in the God-glorifying activity of work, the God-glorifying activity of work. So here we are, question number one. Are you ready? Number one, what do you mean when you talk about vocation? Vocation, that's, that's a word that I think is familiar to us, but probably not in its proper biblical understanding. Usually when we use the word vocation, we are simply thinking about job. We sort of use that interchangeably, vocation, job, and we, and we kind of interchange those words. We talk about vocational training, and what we mean by that is some sort of training to help a person get a job. We speak about vocational education in the same kind of idea. We even speak about bivocational ministry. And the idea basically there is that the person is, is working at two jobs, right? They, they're pastoring and working at some other job, and we often call that their sacred and secular work, much to our shame. But what's missing in all of those discussions and and thinking with regard to to the word vocation is it's really deep and rich biblical meaning. There is a deep and rich biblical meaning that lies behind this word vocation. The actual word in the English vocation comes from the Latin, and it's a vocara, and it means calling. It means calling. Vocation, you can, if you're writing things down, vocation, equal sign, calling. That's what it means, our calling. So when we speak about vocation and the, and the topic of vocation and the concept of vocation in a, in a biblical way of thinking, what we're talking about is calling, our calling. Now, you, you cannot be self-called. 
You cannot be self-called. That would be kind of a silly idea. Someone must call you. And so in, inherent in this whole discussion of vocation or calling is the fact that there is someone, some entity that is calling you. And of course that one is God. It is God. God is the one who does the calling. Open up your uh, Bibles to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me show you what I mean by this. Second Thess chapter 2. Looking at verses 13 and 14, 2 Thess 2, verses 13 and 14, where Paul writes, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is there speaking about what is normally called the effectual call of God. That is, God's divine summons to a sinner whereby God transforms that sinner into one who now loves and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's sovereign calling unto salvation. Now, when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, did you make a real and conscious and meaningful decision to follow Christ? The answer is absolutely. You absolutely did. You responded to the gospel in faith and and chose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But, We must never lose sight of the fact that we chose Christ because Christ first chose us. He first chose us. And and that's what Paul is saying here to the church at Thessalonica. And that reality that God is a, a calling God, a choosing God, a sovereign God, plays very strongly into any discussion of vocation. Into a discussion of vocation. The same Choosing, calling God is the one who calls and chooses and places us into vocation, into our vocation. You can see this, and I'm going to turn you here to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, where this same reality of a calling God, a choosing God, a sovereign God, reveals itself. With regard to our work. With regard to work. Paul's writing here in chapter 7, and he's addressing primarily in this chapter the whole topic of marriage and divorce and, and so forth. But he, he makes a very important uh, statement here or teaching here for us. And that is that he, he instructs these Corinthian believers that when they have come to faith in Jesus Christ, they are not to abandon their station in life. You can see it in verse 20. Verse 20. Each man, Paul says, must remain in that, the NASB translates it, condition, literally, calling in which he was called. That is, when When you are summoned by God to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you place your faith in Christ and come into the family of God, the Apostle Paul says you are to remain in your situation, your station, your calling in life. Now, specifically what he says here, for example, in verses 12 and 13, are that if they are married when they come to faith in Christ, they are not to try to become unmarried, but they are to remain in that married situation station. Verses 12 and 13. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And the woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. That is, you are to remain in that condition, verse 20, that calling in which you were when Jesus opened your eyes to the glories of redemption. You see, by the way, emphasize in verse 24, when Paul finishes the, uh, 
the statements here. He says, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Same, same idea. Paul says to the Jews and the Gentiles that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're, you're not to try to become something that you're not. That is, that if you're, if you're a Jew, you're not to be, try to become a Gentile. If you're a Gentile, you're not to try to become a Jew. He says it, verses 18 and 19, where he says, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping of the commandments of God. So we're not to try to change whether we are Jewish or Gentile when we come to faith in Christ. Paul further says that we are not to try to change our condition even if it involved slavery. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it, he says. Now, he adds the, the caveat, but if you are able also to become free, rather do that. But what he's saying is that if you will come to faith in Jesus Christ while a slave then you, and you remain a slave, don't worry about it. Don't worry about that either. The big idea here is that when you come to faith in Christ, whatever calling, whatever station, whatever situation in life in which you find yourself, that's where God has placed you. That's where you are. In other words, if you are working as a janitor and you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't quit your job as a janitor. You continue to serve the Lord as a janitor. And now you actually are serving Him rather than a human authority figure over you. And so, according to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23, you are to do your work unto the Lord. You're to do your work with excellence. Stay in your calling. Now, the implication of this truth with regard to the doctrine of vocation is huge. It is absolutely huge because what this means is, and check this out, our calling, our station in life, our situation in life has no effect upon our relationship to Jesus Christ. You understand that? No effect at all upon your relationship with Jesus Christ. You are not closer to Christ by virtue of working at a certain occupation, and you are not further from Christ by virtue of working at a certain obligation. That's huge. Listen, Paul says that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, without reference to works, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. That means that all work is equal before God. All legitimate work is equal before God. That means that all callings, all vocations are sacred. They are all sacred callings, sacred vocations. There is not a a difference between a pastor and a plumber, between a missionary and a maid. They are both sacred in the sight of God. They are glorious in the sight of God. They are equally honorable in the sight of God. They do not advance one's spiritual status before God one iota. Not at all. Neither is inherently superior to the other way, to the other. Now, there's another way we can, we can get at this profound truth, and, and we need to come at it from a bunch of different angles because we need to grab a hold of it. We can come at this truth through the, the idea of the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer. Maybe, you, maybe you've heard of that. That's the basic idea that is taught in the New Testament that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that, that all Christians have equal access to God through the resurrected Jesus Christ. Amen? So Paul can say in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's not saying that because of our faith in Jesus Christ that that, uh, men and women somehow disappear or that slavery and free men somehow disappear or that Jews and Greeks disappear. What he's saying is one is not advantaged over the other. But they all come in the same way. 
heard a pastor say years and years ago that, that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. The ground is level. This is amazing. You've got to let this sink in. Your vocation, your calling, and mine are equal in the sight of God. That completely destroys the concept of clergy and, say it, say it, laity. Clergy and laity. Sacred and secular. The pastor, ooh, the pastor, he's closer to God. That's why whenever we gather for a meal, he's the one that has to pray. Right? Because God will hear his prayers. I'm not sure he'll hear mine. Oh, no. Oh, no. We're equal. Equal before God. Different callings, different roles, different functions. But equal before God. Sinners saved by grace through faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. This is very, very important. To grab hold of. But it doesn't end there. Because God is the one who calls to vocation, that means He sets the terms of how we are to fulfill His call. You see how that works? God's the one who does the calling, and so therefore God is the one who gets to set the rules. He gets to set the terms of how the calling is to be fulfilled. Now, we can, we can readily understand the, 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 this concept easily enough by, by thinking about our callings or vocations within the family structure, right? Husbands and wives. Can husbands and wives sort of make it up, do it any way they want? Or does God have some very clear and specific things to say with regard to husbands and wives and how they're to conduct themselves? You know the answer to that. Within the family unit, the, the whole parent-child relationship. Can, can, is it just a free-for-all? We do whatever we want. We make it up however we want. We approach that vocation in any way we desire. Or does the Bible have some clear things to say about that? Obviously true. Even grandparents are not excluded from the, the vocational calling in the, in the family context. God speaks to these things. What that means, beloved, is that it's also true that with our regard to our calling of employment, that there God has something to say as well. God speaks to that issue as well. God is the one who calls us into certain employment, and therefore God speaks to how we're to conduct ourselves in that employment. And he says many, many things, but for this morning, here's the big idea that I, wanna, I want to draw out. And that is, we work to glorify God by expressing that portion of our humanity, right? We've talked about this. It is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. To work is, is to express a portion of what it means to be human, but it doesn't end there. We also work, and check this out, we work to love and serve other people. We work in order to love and serve other people. That's what God has called us to. That's what God has called us to. Jesus said it this way in, in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 and verse 37. This is a situation you remember where a uh, Jesus is being uh, harassed by the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees while well, he is in the, in the temple here at, in the Passion Week. And they, they send a lawyer to him to test him with regard to the law. Remember, and the lawyer comes and he says, you know, teacher, what is the great commandment? Verse 37, and, and Jesus said to him, the great commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And then Jesus goes on and he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
how do I go about fulfilling this second great commandment? The answer is that that we are enabled to, to fulfill this second great commandment through our vocation. Through our vocation. Through our work. We need to understand that that this is one of the purposes for which you have been called into your employment situations. It is to love and to serve your neighbors. In fact, in a sense, we could say that this this is a test of the legitimacy of our job. This is a test of the legitimacy of our job. And what I mean by that is is a a legitimate question to to ask about your job is, how does your job enable you to love and serve your neighbor? How does your job enable you to love and serve your neighbor? Now, in some occupations, it's a little more obvious probably than in others. So, for example, if you're in law enforcement this morning, and we have a number of of folks here that are involved in law enforcement. How does your vocation, your calling into law enforcement, enable you to love and serve your neighbor? Well, uh, it appears on the, on the side of the police cars in some communities, and, and that is to, to protect the innocent and the helpless, right? I think sometimes it says to, I don't know, to protect and serve or something along those lines. And that's the idea, If your vocation is law enforcement this morning, then you are loving and serving your neighbors as you protect the innocent and the helpless of society. And that, my friends, is a very noble, God-glorifying occupation. Teaching. Another occupation in which some of you are involved. In what sense are those involved in teaching able to love and serve their neighbor? It is to educate the ignorant. It is, it is, to, it is to eradicate ignorance. It is to, it is to raise up the, the, the ability to think and learn and, and interact in society that a teacher loves and serves their neighbors. How about a health care? Perhaps you're involved in, the, in health care in some way. So if you're involved in health care, how do you love and serve your neighbor in health care? You ease suffering. You are involved in easing the suffering of your neighbor. That's how you're involved in loving and serving them. Okay, so those are perhaps rather apparent. Let's, let's talk about others. Let's say you're, you're a trash collector. Okay? Let's say that, let's say that you, you, know, you work for the, the, I don't remember the name of that company, but you know they drive all their trucks around, Right? In what way are you able to love and serve your neighbor? Well, the answer is simply this. You are beautifying the community in which your neighbors live. You beautify the community in which they live. Listen, if somebody wasn't out there who cared, who was, who was diligent in, in, in picking up the trash that we generate, how long would it take before our communities were overrun? It's really important job you do. It is a God-glorifying work that you do as you love and serve people. All right, here's another one for you. How about if you're a drill press operator? Okay, you're a drill press. My job is, is to go in. I work eight hours a day. I work at a drill press. I have these big you know, metal plates, and, and I have to drill X number of holes in them, and then I pass it down the line, and I get another plate, and I do the same thing, and that's what I do all day long. Is that legitimate work? Is that God-glorifying work? Is God pleased with you in that work? The answer is, depending how you approach it, yes. Absolutely. You are loving and serving your neighbor because as you are diligent and take, and take care in how you do your work, making sure all of the holes are in exactly the right places before you pass that part on, you are loving the person to whom you are now passing on the part. You are facilitating and enabling them to do their work well. And so indeed you are loving them. You are indeed serving them. And it is indeed God-glorifying. How about an insurance claims uh, hot, you know, helpline operator? 
Can you love and serve your neighbor if you, you're working in who knows where and you know, you got a headphone on and you're just taking calls from people about insurance claims? How do you love and serve there? Well, you love them and you serve them by, by providing timely, quali- you know, quality, friendly, compassionate customer service. You, you recognize that, that the person who is calling you on the line, they have a need. It's, it's likely that, that, that they've been, been stressed out by something that's come, you know, a, a claim that's been refused or, or some sort of a copayment that they didn't think they had or, or whatever the situation, and they are in need of help. And so when, when you approach them with that kind of compassionate, uh, quality care, you are loving them and you are serving them. You can be a doorman at a hotel. A doorman at a hotel. The guy who opens the door and holds it as, you, as people come in and out, right? Sort of, sort of invisible, transparent. Could be replaced by a doorstop, someone would think. But not so. But not so. See, a doorstop cannot love and serve. But a doorman can. A doorman who, who understands that, that the, the people coming in and out through that door are guests of the hotel. And so he provides for them a, a friendly, courteous care. Speaks to them. Helps them with their luggage. Is, is just providing the, the service to that particular guest. They are loving and they are serving their neighbor. And their work is God glorifying. And they are uh, God is, 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 is pleased with their work as he is with some megachurch pastor. You understand that? God is just as delighted in what they do. Now, as we are are loving and serving our neighbors through our vocation, we need to do it with a high level of competence. We need, to, we need to perform with a high level of competence. We, we serve God best when we serve Him with excellence. We serve God best when we serve Him with excellence. I have a couple of quotes for you here from uh, Dorothy Sayers. Again, I'm referring back to that essay that she wrote uh, 50 years ago called Why Work. She is a, was a very insightful woman when it came to this. She writes, and I quote, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. He should make good tables. No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety, that that is religious devotion, in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. Wow. What she's saying is that you can, you can have all the you know, praise Jesus expressions uh, plastered all over your cubicle at work. But if you do not do quality work, then you completely undercut all of that expression of worship. All of it. Save the posters and put the effort into your work. Become excellent at whatever God has called you to do. Become excellent at it. Work at it. Be diligent at it. Study it. Practice it. Until you are the most competent that possible with the gifts and abilities that God has given you. Excellence in work is God-glorifying. Dorothy Sayers goes on to write something else, I think, which is equally profound. She says, let the church remember this. 
that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. We are called to serve God in our profession, in our trade, in our calling, not outside of it. That is, we do not work eight hours a day and then serve God with some small amount of time on the weekends. That we are serving God as we are involved. She goes on to say, The apostles complained rightly when they said it was not meet or proper that they should leave the word of God and serve tables. (coughs) Their vocation was to preach the word. But the person whose vocation, check this out, but the person whose vocation it is to prepare the meals beautifully might with equal justice protest. It is not meet, it is not proper for us to leave the service of our tables to preach the word. Now that confronts us. Wow. No, 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 no. We we should all quit our jobs and, and become itinerant preachers because then God would be most pleased with us. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If God has, is calling you into a preaching ministry, then give yourself to it. But if God is, is calling you into the, into the ministry of, of working as an engineer, then give yourself to it. You will glorify Him equally regardless of that calling. One is not superior to the other. They are both God-glorifying. They are both pleasing in His sight. If God's called you to serve tables, then... Do serving tables with excellence. God has called you to preach. Preach with excellence. See, here's the bottom line. The bottom line in all this is is that we need to see work through a new lens. We need to look at work through a new kind of lens. Where, to a large degree, we are like the fish in in the fish tank. Right? We've used this illustration over and over. We are like the fish in the fish tank. What do I mean by that? The fish in the fish tank do not know that they are wet. Okay? They have no idea that they are wet. It's only somebody who is outside the tank who knows that. We, to a large degree, because we are within this culture, fail to see how this culture has and is influencing us. And we need the Word of God, which is outside, which is above the culture, to to speak to us and help us to understand and rightly live within the culture. So we need a whole new lens when it comes to employment, when it comes to work. Listen, work is not so much about providing financially to your family. I mean... But that's such our orientation. i got to work because I, I, you know, I, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work. i go because I owe. I forget how that goes. Anyway. Oh, I know what it is. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. That's the one. Anyway. We so much look at it as about money. Right? It's all about money. Did you get a new job? Yeah, how much are they paying you? I'm going to leave this job. Why? Because they're not paying me enough always about money. Listen, money is at best a short-term motivator. You understand that? At best, it's a short-term motivator. If you think if I would work harder if they gave me a raise, you are lying to yourself. Okay? You might work harder for a day or two or a week or maybe a month, but I guarantee you within a year that it doesn't matter how much they're paying you, your work output will be the same. will be the same. We don't work for money. God provides for us in that way, graciously through our work, but that's not what work is about. It's not what work is about. Work is about fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. You understand that? Work is about fulfilling the purpose, or yea, I say purposes, for which God has created me and created you. 
If we approach work with a, with a biblical understanding, then we will, we will begin to sense the pleasure of God in our work. But I think I can be so bold as to say, if you hate your job, it is because you are approaching your work with a pagan point of view. A pagan point of view. That if you will begin to approach your work with a biblical mindset, you will be amazed at how your attitude will change. Now, I'm not saying that the situation will get better or that some people aren't in very difficult situations, to be sure. But even in the worst possible employment situation that you can imagine, a biblical mindset will completely revolutionize your approach to your job. So when... Here it is. When we say to each other, you know, how, you know, how do you like your work? I hate it. Then, uh, then I'm giving you license to rebuke that person in love and to say, brother or sister, you're, you're not thinking about work rightly. You've got a skewed opinion of what your work is all about. Okay. So now that we know what vocation is, I've got a second question. We've got a second question to answer. It, it's sort of begs itself. Here it is. How do I find my vocation? If this is what vocation is all about, how do I find it? How do I find it? Now, any discussion of vocation brings us unavoidably to the topic of providence. It brings us unavoidably to the topic of providence. And the topic of providence is like the deep end of the swimming pool. If you go in... Without a life preserver, you may not come back out. So I want to be very, very careful here. We're going to be at the shallow end of the pool. We're going to put our toe in with regard to the doctrine of providence. But I would commend to you, if, you are, if this is all very unfamiliar concept to you, that you do some personal investigative study on the doctrine of providence. It is, it is incredible. But let's start with a definition. What is providence? So I have it for you here. This is one definition. The continuing action of God by which He preserves in existence the creation which He has brought into being and guides it to His intended purposes for it. Let me read it to you again. The continuing action of God. So this is God's constant care. The continuing action of God by which He preserves in existence the creation which he brought into being, so he he sustains and maintains all things, and he guides it to its intended purpose. What that means is there is nothing random. There are no random stray molecules anywhere in the universe. God is providentially ruling his creation, guiding and directing his creation. If you like it this way, God is the master chess player. And he is drawing all things together for the fulfillment of his great eternal plan. Everything. Everything. The scriptures are absolutely replete with verses that describe and teach God's providential rule. For example, Acts chapter 17 and verse 26. Paul writes, or he's speaking there, Luke's writing, actually. Paul's sermon. But Paul says, From one man, he that is God, made every nation of men. Now we know that, right? The one man was who? Adam. Why? That they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, that is God, determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. That's amazing. What that means is that that God has determined where you will live and how long you will live, both there and in total for your life. Why were you, those of you born in the United States, why were you born in the United States? Why were you not born in another country? Those of you born in another country, why were you born in another country? Those of you that were born on the East Coast, why were you not born on the West Coast? Those of you born in Southern California, why were you not born in Northern California? Those of you that were born in Upland, why weren't you born in Pomona? The answer is God. God is at work. And he determines all these things. 
every single one of them. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. Why are you in the socioeconomic class that you're in? Why do do you have what you have versus someone else? Why do you have the education that you have versus someone else? The answer is because God has determined it to be so. God has determined it to be so. God is ruling over all of this. And so my economic and social situation is a result of the providential rule of God. We have to grasp onto this. God is at work in my life. He is at work in your life. And, and, and He has placed you exactly where He wants you. If you are suffering this morning, you are there by the providential rule of God. If you are prospering this morning, you are there by the providential rule of God. Don't you ever think you're there by your own intelligence, by your own hard work, by your own creativeness or, or ingenuity or anything else. You are there because God has put you there. And therefore, you have a stewardship to God. Do you understand that? You're in a stewardship with God. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We plan, God directs. We plan and God directs. Hey, let me say this. This is going to really sit you up. All right, all the sleepers, you ready? This is for you. Contrary to all the self-help books, all the seminars that you have ever heard of, you, listen to me now, you cannot be whatever you want to be. Okay? Do you know that? You cannot be whatever you want to be. In God's providence, you are who you are. You have a, you have a certain personality. You have a certain intellect. You have a, you have a certain educational base. You have a certain level of skills. You have a certain uh, level of intelligence. You have a certain level of physical abilities. They all are from God. They're from God. Thus they are a stewardship. Now let me give you a what I think is the most obvious example of all. When I was young, I wanted to be a professional hockey player. That's what I wanted to do. And I was pretty good. At one level, at least. I played hockey all the time. All the time. I practiced. I worked at it. I dreamed about it. I read books about it. I wanted to play in the National Hockey League as a, as a goalie. And I grew up in a small town. And so by growing up in a small town, surrounded by small towns, there's, there's not a lot of competition. So I was pretty good. <laughs> I was pretty good. Then I went off to college. And... Uh, tryouts for the hockey team. And my alma mater is a, a Division I contender. And I showed up, and there were 12 other freshman goalies. I'd never seen that many goalies in my life. Well, I hung around for a couple of weeks. But eventually, you know, there's uh, you guys who have played sports or ladies who played sports, you know, outside the coach's window with some Athletic tape, there's a list posted every couple of days. And you line up there to look to see whether your name's on the list or not. And if it ain't on the list, clean out your locker. Well, after a couple of weeks, I cleaned out my locker. That was it. That was it. I'm never going to be a professional hockey player. Why? Not because I didn't want to be. Not because I didn't work hard at it. It's because God was not calling me to be a professional hockey player. And therefore, it does not matter how much I wanted it, how much I worked at it. I was never going to get there. Never. 
It would never be my vocation. That's just my life. You've got the same kinds of stories in your life. God is at work. Now, it's, it's easy for us in, in some cases to, to sort of say, well, certain individuals have no choice, right? So you think about the, the rural farmer in, in, uh, you know, in China or something, and you say, listen, that person has no choice. They're, they're going to be on the farm. Their father was on the farm. That's all they're ever going to do. They've got no choice. So that's obvious. But here in America, we, we delude ourselves. See, we delude ourselves. We, we're on the surface. We think we have all kinds of choices. All kinds of choices. And, and, we, and so we can tend to, to get paralyzed with all of, the, all of the choices that we have. Or we grow restless because there's so many choices. You know, there's, there's all kinds of jobs available today that weren't available just a decade or two ago. I went online to check that out. found this article in the Wall Street Journal. No, sorry, Forbes magazine. It says, uh, 10 jobs that didn't exist 10 years ago. 10 jobs that didn't exist 10 years ago. This is drawn from that monster you know, uh, website where people put their, their um, resumes and so forth on. So these are, these are legit jobs. Although I question some of them. But anyway, here they are. <laughs> Number one, app developer. App developer for smartphones and tablets. There was no such job 10 years ago. Number two, Market research data miner. When I was a kid, mining meant you went under the ground. <laughs> Nowadays, it's, you go into the computer. How about this one, number three? Millennial generational expert. This is a legit job. People get paid a lot of money. You know, what are you? I'm a millennial generational expert. <laughs> Really? My mother was one of those. (laughs) She was a generational expert. Number four, social media manager. You got to manage the social media for your company. How about this one? Number five, chief listening officer. Chief listening officer, I'm I'm not joking with you. This, This particular person, this individual, and it's open to men and women, they monitor what people say about their company on social media. And they, and they better. Because if they're not aware of what's being said about their company on social media, their company's going to cease to exist almost overnight. You can slander somebody now almost with impunity on the, in social media, right? There's another one for you. Number six, elder care. Elder care. This person uh, monitors what, excuse me, interfaces between the patient, the family, and the medical staff on end-of-life issues. We have made dying so complicated, we have to hire a consultant in order to die now. That's basically what it amounts to. We have so complicated this process, you have to have a personal consultant in order to die. Only in an incredibly rich, wealthy, and materialistic society is, is such a foolish job necessary. Number seven, sustainability expert. This, uh, this individual monitors a company's green profile. Monitors their green profile. So I guess it has to do with you know, how they use energy and, and sustainable resources and on and on, I guess. I'll give you one more. Number eight, user experience design. User experience design. This individual is concerned with how to mimic nature through technology. How to mimic nature through technology. So the example that I read was uh, in the morning, early in the morning, the birds are chirping. So you want to mimic that in an alarm clock when it goes off so that people kind of hear birds chirping when they can wake up. Or press the snooze button, or I don't know, whatever they do. Just in the last 10 years, these positions, and many more. So what are we to do with all of this? I mean, it's, a, it's a, just an overwhelming mass of information coming at us. So under the umbrella of the providence of God, how do we make 
meaningful choice. How do you make meaningful choice under the providence of God? We're not fatalists. God grants us the ability to think and, and make meaningful decisions to be sure. So how do you do it? Well, the answer is you need wisdom. You need wisdom. You need wisdom in, in assessing your interests and your abilities in order to help you to determine the field of endeavor. Now, this process has, uh, I think, two aspects. Internal desire and, and external confirmation. Internal desire, external confirmation. All right, let me, just, let me just walk you through a few questions really quick. Looking at the clock here. How do I go about it? You need help. Okay, no one is so self-aware that they don't need help. Here are things. You ask yourself, what are my interests? What are my interests? Am I an indoor person or an outdoor person? Am I a people person or a project person? Am I a person who is interested in using my hands or am I a person who is interested in using my head? Am I a person who, who does well in structure or am I a person who does well in an unstructured environment? Just basic questions like that help you narrow things down. Second, what do I like? What do I find joy in doing? What do I do that, in which I sense the pleasure of God? Three, what am I good at? What am I good at? Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skilled at his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. What are you good at? Now listen, this is where you need help. I mean, you may be good at building model airplanes, but that does not make you a a good candidate to be an aeronautical engineer. Okay? When you hit the first calculus class, you will know. You will know. Let me just say this while I'm here. Listen, not everybody should go to college. Not everybody should go to college. We live in a crazy world in which somehow we're pushing everybody to college. And there's, there's a simple uh, formula of economics that is, that is hardwired into this creation called the law of supply and demand. When the supply is limited and the demand grows, the price rises. I graduated from the University of Massachusetts in 1979. My senior year, room, board, tuition, $3,000. That same year now, that's an in-state resident tuition, is over $30,000. Okay, why? Supply and demand. When everybody has to go to college, the price rises. And when debt is used to fund it, nobody knows what the real price is anymore. Be very careful of getting pulled into that trap. Fourth, is this work God-honoring? It's a question you need to ask yourself. Is this work God-honoring work? Five, how will this work love and serve my neighbor? How will this work love and serve my neighbor? You need to be able to answer that question. Six, Do I have an elitist attitude toward work? Do I have an elitist attitude toward work? That's the idea that some jobs are beneath me. Oh, I couldn't uh, rule those things out right away because I'm too good for that. Really. It might be exactly where you belong. Seven. And finally there. Am I giving myself to the opportunities to work that God has already given to me? See, am I, am I really giving myself to the vocation in which I am presently occupied? Until we can, can say that, then, then why would God call you to anything else? Listen, you don't, you don't get to graduate until you pass the exam, normally speaking. So if, if, the, if the vocation in which you are involved, you are still approaching it with a pagan mindset, why would God give you some other vocation? You need to stay there until you learn. Don't waste what you have. Constantly longing for something else. Become good at what you're doing. And God will take care of where else you go. 
Listen, we need to say here, Simon, we're not singing today. I might go on forever. No, I won't do that. Okay. Hey, we need to say here, okay, there's something to note here that I think is important. And that is that vocation can and will change throughout a person's lifetime. Okay? Ordinarily, it can and will change. Not always true. My grandfather worked for the General Electric Company. He entered their apprentice program at age 16. He was actually an indentured uh, student. That is, his parents signed papers, uh, signing him over to the General Electric Corporation, and they put him through school. If he, f- if he flunked out, his parents had to pay back the General Electric Corporation a pretty large sum of money. He never left GE. Eventually, he became a plant manager, and he retired one employer, one place his entire working career. That's not normal. Certainly not anymore. So vocations change. That's the point. They can change. They, they do change. And usually you have multiple vocations at the same time. Multiple vocations. It's not just a, you know, your 8 to 5 vocation. They're, you're called to other vocations. You're, if you're married, you're, you're, you're in a vocation there, husband or wife. If, if you have children, you're, you're in a vocation there parent. If you're a child, you're, you're in a vocation to be a child. It's hard work to be a kid. <laughs> if you're a grandparent, you don't get off the hook. You're in a vocation there. You're a grandparent or a great-grandparent. You're in a vocation at, with regard to the church. I mean, there were just you're in multiple vocations. Everybody's bivocational, trivocational, whatever. I mean, when I was in college, uh, my vocation was pumping gas. Then it changed, and I became a security guard. Then I graduated, and I, and I went into banking. And then after a couple of decades in banking, I, I was called by this church to come and join the pastoral staff. Multiple vocations through a 35-year working career. And at the same time, I, my, I was in a vocation as a husband and a, and a father and now a grandfather. I'm involved in all these things. So are you. So are you. Listen, I want you to be encouraged. This is, this is, this is to encourage you, not to beat you up. This is, this is to renew in you a passion for, for glorifying God in the situation in which you find yourself. Approaching it with a, with a new mindset, perhaps. A biblical mindset. And understanding that, that, that work is a, is a great and glorious and noble thing. And the possibilities of loving and serving your neighbor that are inherent in your, in your vocation, you need to search them out. Pursue them. to love and serve others. Because any legitimate work done well is God-glorifying. And in that, you can put your head on the pillow at night and sleep like a baby. May God grant us grace to hear His Word and to apply it. Let's pray. Father, thank You Thank you, O Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you that it's a truth that transforms as your Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see it, to understand it, and strengthens our desire and commitment to apply it. Father, I pray for all of us in this room today. For we are all involved in In multiple vocations, our Father, you have called us to this task. It is is an essential part of what it means to be human. So, Lord, I pray that we would really get a hold of that. That it it would really transform and revolutionize the way we approach our work, our hobbies, our ministries. May you enable us to feel your pleasure 
as we fulfill that for which you have created us. Only in the power of your spirit through the sacrificial death, resurrection of your son. And it's in his name we pray, amen. God bless you, beloved. Go for it tomorrow.